Can you hear like my kids screaming in the background? G'day! Welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Cairns and I am one of your hosts today in the show. And of course, I am here with Jeff Insko, my co-host who's sitting looking at me through a computer screen and I am so excited to be talking to him. Jeff, how are you doing? What's going on? Not much. Things are starting to cool down here in Baltimore. It's my yeah. first fall experience. Can I tell you something that I have only just discovered about America? Yes, please do. In Australia, we change the seasons on the first of the month. So in Australia, spring would have started on the 1st of September. And so it's very strange to me to be living in a country where the seasons do not change when I think seasons change because fall in America starts on the uh, on the equinox or yeah. yeah. So huh. that is that is one of my discoveries from the past month. I did not know that, but you know what? Fall in the I I guess Baltimore is considered the northeast. Fall in the northeast Eastern United States is probably my personally my favorite season. You know, I like the the crispness. I like the leaves starting to change, and uh, it feels like it's a there's a good energy to it, in my opinion. So I, I'm glad you're experiencing this for the first time. Yeah, I I have to say, so far so good. I'm very much looking forward to trying out all of the American traditions for the first time, like Halloween and yeah. pumpkin carving and all of those sorts of things, and pumpkin flavored everything, which apparently <laughs> is everywhere. Yeah, and American football. I hope you're I hope you're getting uh, getting your feet uh, into that. So strangely enough, although I know nothing about the sport, I do have a fantasy football team. And nice. so, well, actually, it is a really interesting way of learning how a country works is through its sport. And yeah. if I was just watching to watch it, that would be very hard to sustain my interest because I'm not mm-hmm. particularly a sports person. Yeah. But I am a competitive person. <laughs> so I think there, this then becomes a good way in. There may be some analogies there and, and maybe, <laughs> maybe some, some topics for a future show because I know underneath the kind of mu- museum and uh, innovation and technology conversations, there are some closet sports fans. I know Tyler Green is playing <laughs> into sports. I know Chad at Balboa Park, we've tweeted back and forth about stuff. And Sarah, Sarah Stierch um, is, is, is big. Into- so maybe we can have like a, a lighthearted kind of museo sports I, I think that sounds kind of fun. I have to admit that sounds pretty good. Yeah. So, so things here are going pretty well. Um, work at the BMA is super interesting. Um, it's our hundredth anniversary, and we've just kicked off the hundred nice. days of celebration, which is super exciting. Very. What cool. about you? How's everything going? Yeah, things are things are moving along here in Pittsburgh. We're um, you know at, at, at my museum, we have some some really great projects going on. The, the most uh, the largest scale of which right now is a, is a data project we're working on to kind of structure and, and visualize provenance data. It's kind of how the artworks move around and, and, chan, and change change of, uh, you know, chain of custody and kind of start to see and, and paint pictures of, of history through the, through the movement and ownership of artworks. It's, it's, um, it's an interesting project. Yeah. It sort of scares me how much I'm like, Oh, that sounds hot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, slightly yeah. nerdy, but actually that's something I've been wanting museums to do for a long time is, it is actually using our data to be able to understand history in different yeah. ways. And so it sounds like you're right on that. 
Well, we're at the at the early stages of it. You know, it's a project. It's a multi-year project. It's a um, we're kind of looking at structuring our own data and prototyping on that data in the first phase. Um, and then from there, we're looking to scale out. We're looking to kind of invite par- partner institutions to structure there because the real stories are told when institutions start integrating that data together. And you can see where you've loaned artworks and that institution has information that you can share. So, right. um, yeah, so that's uh, we actually brought on a, a, a full stack developer for the project who are, you know, so we're kind of looking at the way the way the the department is structured to support things like this mm. um so um yeah so it's i'm really excited about it it's it's fantastic but that you know all of these things that we're talking about but your museum my museum have led to some lags in, you know in the show i mean this is we haven't done this in a while so we're trying to keep the momentum up with with this show too and um yeah it's true i mean i think we also had a few technical issues which is a shame yeah. with one of the shows that we recorded and that always true. makes things hard but uh yeah. i think the other thing is it, it is just actually finding our voice and finding our topics and what we want to talk about but also how we want to talk about them which is a very nice segue into what we are talking about today which is language and the way we talk, the way we think and how that actually, um, the way we use language gives give shape to our work, to our worlds, to our expectations. The two really, uh, really great, but, but kind of different approaches to the way we look at language. And, and uh, first up, we have Colleen Dylan Schneider, who I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners already know. Um, and then also we kind of talk to uh, Jeff Grable, who is a professor of rhetoric uh, about, uh, you know, language and, um, and the way we speak about things on, in a more holistic way. Colleen Dillenschneider is Chief Market Engagement Officer for Impacts, a global leader in predictive market intelligence and related technologies. Utilizing Impacts data to both identify and predict emerging market opportunities, Colleen helps nonprofit and visitor serving organizations engage on site and virtual audiences. Colleen is the author and publisher of the popular blog Know Your Own Bone, a resource for creative engagement for nonprofit and cultural organizations that has been prominently featured in many national museum association publications and is required reading for numerous museum studies programs and professional conferences. Colleen, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, a-, a few weeks ago, you put up a post on your blog in which uh, you argued that talking about the future of museums might be holding museums back in the present. You know, this idea that that things get characterized as being future, are they're actually about the present and the now. And it was a post that really resonated with both Suze and, and myself. Uh, and it's an issue that, that we wanted to unpack a little bit. Um, can, you, uh, can you start today by telling us, you know, a little more about about this idea from this post? Yeah, sure. Um, I get to work in my uh, the work that I do. I work with a whole bunch of different kind of visitor-serving organizations um, and also some nonprofits. But one thing I've, I particularly noticed with the visitor-serving organizations is that, you know, I'll come in, I'll, I'll present current data about what's happening right now about utilizing mobile platforms or, you know, digital engagement, things that things that are really happening right now. Um, and then the conversation will be over and, and, you know, the CEO will say, well, these are 
we are really forward facing. These are great things to think about in the future. Um, and I just noticed this was happening, you know, over and over and over again. Um, and we're kind of classifying. It's, it's just interesting to think about the domino effect that happens when we take what's really happening right now in the present and we call it the future. It, it creates this kind of system that kind of excuses um, our, mm. our not thinking about things that are actually happening right now. Um, it also um, gives us this false sense of innovation when we're actually doing things that are for the right now, that we should be doing for our, our, our organizational survival. Um, and and it, I just, it's interesting to think about how the words that we're using to talk about the present and calling it the future may be doing some internal damage um, and keeping us from moving forward when that's really not what we want at all. What we want, because we're talking about these things, is to be current. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting to me that you wrote this post now because it seems like people have been talking this way about the future of museums for, for quite a long time. So it can't be a new issue. Is there something... Is there something about the now that actually makes this more relevant? Is, is, is there something about the way we're talking about these things that has, has shifted? I think, I think that what's happening is that a lot of things are hitting the museum and cultural, you know, visitor serving organization industry all at once. I think it's, mm. it's the emerging, I think it's the millennial audiences that are coming, you know, that are you coming up to the plate right now. I think it's, you know, that we're, we're living in a more diverse um, economy where, you know, English as second language households are, are really stepping up to the plate and they need to be our new, our new audiences. We're living in this place where mobile technology is happening. Um, there's, there's this imperative to be active on social media. I think all these things happening at once is I think that I think naturally change. I mean, of course, I think naturally changes is hard and difficult, but I think that since all that is happening in our industry right now, um, I think that I wonder if I wonder if perhaps calling it the future is our way of coping in a way with with it, with these kind of ideas that are kind of overwhelming could be potentially overwhelming for these institutions that have so many stakeholders um, mm. to report to and so many and, and you know museums tend to be you know tend to still have these kind of siloed structures mm. and a lot of the things that being present today and being engaging. Um, to audiences, a lot of those things right now demand that you have a more centralized or less kind of more horizontal structure. And so when not even the way that we are fundamentally built from the beginning facilitates this kind of thinking, it becomes an even more deeper issue. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's, and it's interesting to think about because you wonder, you know, is it a language issue if we stop, mm. start talking about it? The future, we start calling the future right now, which is what it is, which what data suggests it is, then will the, the issue resolve itself from the top down with our language because we'll begin to internalize and deeply understand the imperative of moving forward? Or is it something that needs to start from the bottom and we keep doing these things and then, you know, it bubbles up to the top? And, and, and I, don't, I don't know the answer to it, but I think it's certainly an, an interesting it's an interesting challenge that I think that these kind of organizations face. Yeah, t definitely. So why do you think we talk so much about futures instead of present, this, this idea of the present? You know, I tend to think that, you know, I think a lot of it stems from 
you know, museums trying to keep up with other sectors like technology and um, entertainment sectors. Um, but and I'm wondering, uh, you know, how much of that, you know, when we use words like future, innovation, forward thinking, do you think it's informed by those things or maybe marketing or fundraising? I mean, who are we trying to convince with this language? I totally agree with you. I think that I think that it may be born of a want to be to be, I think talking about the present as if it's the future is born out of a want to be present. But I think future has a connotation. When you talk about the future, you say you're an organization that's talking about the future. It has a, a sense of we're cutting edge. We're forward thinking. We're not drowning in this moment. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not having all these challenges that are, that are facing us right now. We are so ahead of that that we're talking about later. And, and that sounds kind of cool. That sounds sexy. That sounds innovative. Um, and I, I think we all want to be, especially since museums are working so hard in light of all these changes that are happening with, with demographics. I think, I think it's not a reward that we, we say, but it's being misused perhaps as kind of a, a language reward for working on the present. And, and we want to be cool. We want to be innovative. Um, and we want to show people that we're being innovative, especially, I often wonder if it's especially because museums do sometimes have that public perception of being these stagnant organizations. So maybe mm. particularly, particular, there may be a particular want to be able to say, you know, we're forward facing, we're thinking about the future. And I actually do think that thinking about the future, the real future, mm. is important. I just, I, I think, I believe that it may be dangerous to call the, the present, the future and excusing, putting off things that we need to be thinking about right now. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned this idea of the things that we need to be thinking about right now, because one of the points you make in your post is that the future implies in uncertainty, whereas trend data is not uncertain. Can you tell us a little bit more about trend data and also how quickly we can act on that data? I mean, how, how quickly can a trend become meaningful? Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question. We do, the work that I do is collecting kind of big data and it's um, non-proprietary data. So it's data that can be easily shared. And what that usually means is that it isn't owned by one institution, um, which has an innate relevance to a broader audience because it's kind of a compilation of, of market perception. And when this, and this data isn't just, it's all over the place. You can see, you know, the amount of people, it's everything from, you know, the amount of people that are now using Snapchat. It's, it's mm -hmm. this data all around. And in fact, um, especially now, you know, in the digital age, everyone's just kind of pulling for numbers with this kind of want to figure out the numbers behind digital engagement and, and what's the value of a connection online. I think that we know that a trend's worth acting on when you can see a large section of the market using, using it. So when you know that your audiences are doing something, it's important to get there. So when it's at your detriment to, to not be there, I think it's better to be there before that point. So um, I think that the way that this manifests itself the most is that um, when it comes to small things like Oh, really? Small things like, should we be on Instagram? I think those things are less the problem than mm -hmm. things like, should we prioritizing ha prioritize having a mobile platform? And the data is pretty unassailable that the market is using mobile platforms. Um, I think that 
The risk with data is getting too caught up in the smaller things, um, especially when there are so many big things that rock the core of organizations, like digital engagement, which infiltrates, you know, as Jeff was saying, which infiltrates, you know, marketing and development, um, and is a bigger picture than how do we have, you know, an Instagram meetup. Um, so I think when the data suggests that there's there's a room, so if you are, if all of your channels are in different rooms and you're talking into one room and that room is empty, and the data suggests everybody's at this other party, it's, it's your imperative to go to the other party to talk to people. So when you realize you're talking to a wall, it's time to move and stop talking to a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and I, I think what's interesting is that um, there's often data that has never been future-facing, has always been current that we still talk about as the future. For instance, there is the Bass Model Diffusion is a pretty popular topic in, in, in you know, business schools and marketing classrooms. And what we know is that we do a lot of studying with, you know, what's the, what's the value of paid media versus what's the value of things you say about yourself um, versus what's the value of things that other people say about you. And what we do know is that in according to the model of diffusion, what people say about you is 12.85 times more important in driving your reputation than what you say about yourself. And we know that reputation is a key driver of visitation. And that has always been the case. That's not new. That's not data that just developed because we have TripAdvisor or because, you know, we have social media. That's always been the case that when you hear something from a trusted third-party trusted resource, you trust it more than things that somebody is in self-endorsement, things that are people are paying to say about themselves. And, and we'll share this data and there will still be, there'll still be folks that will say, well, that's great. That's really forward facing. That's, that's something to think about in the future. And it's, it's interesting. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts or insights as to why it is so hard for museums to, to respond to trend data in a timely fashion? Um, you know, I think there's this there's this context of, of institutionalism and kind of this, you know, we, we kind of, in my museum, use the metaphor of the ocean liner, you know, where it's very hard to turn an ocean liner. We need to be uh, a, a day vessel, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so um, I, I, I'm just curious as to your ideas on that. Um, in terms of? In terms of why it's hard for institutions to 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 act quickly and responsively to this data? That's a great question. I think that it's based on the way that um, our organizations are built. I think that since organizations, especially museums, cultural organizations tend to have a lot of different departments, um, Mm. we've kind of had this divide and conquer mentality for for a long time. And it's really worked. In the past, it, it really worked. But we're coming into this age where the divide and conquer strategy is getting a little bit harder because it requires so much collaboration to be able to come out with a cohesive brand, a cohesive, you know, public display of who you are. Um, And I think that it stems from, I think it's hard to move that, that streamliner because I think it's an, it's an internal thing that we're trying to, to wrestle with. Um, that's actually that's actually pretty deep, and then needs to bubble up from there. So I th- I think I think it's that factor that it's it's kind of it's not just our language, but it's also kind of we're used to being siloed, and how do we not be siloed and talk about the future that isn't siloed? Um, there's an immediate barrier there. But I think again, I think the second thing is 
that there really is a lot happening at once right now. And I think that um, you could honestly, you know, you could say that at any age, but if you particularly consider, you know, the advancements in technology and being able to connect and create these relationships, this is, this is a new thing, not just for museums, but for, you know, all organizations and all companies around the world is this ability to, instead of having megaphone channels of communication, having these kind of communication, these kind of relationship building, um, ears, you know, ears and mouth communications. And it's something we're all adjusting to. And, and when you are a dream a streamliner and you have all of those departments and you have to make sure everyone's on board, I think there's a lot of moving parts there. And I think that it it's totally, I don't think, you know, it's interesting. I don't think it's, I don't think it should be easy. It, it sounds, I think it's a big it's a big nut to crack. It's a big mm. thing. And I think it's going to take time. But I also think that acknowledging the importance of, of being agile um, yeah. and being flexible is increasingly important for being able to better manipulate that streamliner for organizations in the future. Right. What I'm curious about is, you know, if we talk about language as being at the root of this, or certainly part of the problem of how we talk about this, then what language can or should we use to change or reshape the conversation? I mean, do terms like responsive and adaptable and nimble actually help? Do they position them for adaption or are they detrimental? What, what language can we be using? I think the key there is that the language needs to match the action. So if you call yourself nimble or you call yourself flexible, but you're really not, then you're devaluing that word, nimble and flexible, and you're making it have no meaning. So I think that it stems from being able to make quick decisions, being able to get stakeholders on board, being, to, being able to have you know, a deeper internal understanding of the need to move. I think the need to move is something we're not used to. And I think that that may be where it starts, understanding that. I think the language, I think the language is certainly important, but I think that um, whatever language you use should match what you're actually doing. Hence, if you're talking about the present, call it the present. Um, you know, yeah, and kind of moving from there. Uh, definitely. Um, so, Colleen, your site is super popular, and this post in particular um, is quite provocative. I'm wondering how it's been received by your readers and people in the sector. It's interesting. Folks have been um, overwhelmingly, when I post a post, there's always a certain amount of, I, I guess, you know, any blogger, you know, would relate to this, but there's yeah. always a certain amount of pushback that you get. And then there's always a certain amount of, yeah, sing it, sister, that you get when right. you post something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I like this one selfishly because it did get a lot of that sing it, sister vibe. There were a lot of folks that were like, hey, um, hey, my organization does that. Another thing I think was interesting was how quickly people were to promulgate that post outside of outside of the cultural sector. So oh, wow. we, you know, there were people saying, oh, our used car dealership. This, this relates to us and people, you know, saying, oh, our, you know, our symphony, which, you know, again, visitor serving organization relates to us or this, you know, homeless or and interestingly, you know, within our homeless shelter, this true story, this actually applies to us. And I think that that's, in, it's encouraging in a way because it means that it's something that we're all 
facing. Well, it means it's something we're all facing that we're all kind of struggling with wrestling these, but it's also, it's also kind of terrifying, right? Because it means that we're all not really talking about a future that we think we're talking about. Right. I think what's interesting, and I wonder how much this has to do with technology and Jeff, I mean, you mentioned the sort of marketing buzzwords is actually that there is this urge across really all sectors right now to be saying, hey, but we're, we're here, we're with it, we are absolutely on track for the future. This disruptive media, this disruptive technology, they're not going to disrupt us that much. Like, I wonder if it's almost this sense of um, self-assurance or, or trying to trying to promise that you're worth trusting into or, the future. Yeah. Right, yeah. Or relevance, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a really awesome discussion, Colleen. If anyone who's listening who does not read your blog, uh, where can they go to uh, to read it and to find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. My blog is called Know Your Own Bone. It's at www.colleendillon.com. It's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-I-L-E-N.com. Um, you can also, I'm also on Twitter. I'm C. Dilly. Um, and I'm also on Facebook if you want to um, get some silly uh some still, I really like silly things. So if you want to get some silly things and articles in your news feed, I'm there as well. And I love to connect. So please reach out. Um, I love hearing from folks. I could talk shop all day long. So if any of you guys have a Saturday or anyone listening has a Saturday and just wants to sit and talk shop, I would love it. So please reach out. <laughs> yeah, we are definitely going to have to have coffee or something yes. next time we're in the same city because talking shop, yeah, I think anyone in this conversation and I'm sure any of our listeners, that's absolutely what it's about because, you know, that's what we do. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Awesome. Well, Colleen, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, And we look forward to following you online. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Take care. Jeff Grable is a professor of rhetoric and professional writing and chair of the Department of Writing, Rhetoric and American Cultures at Michigan State University. He's a senior researcher with Wide Research, which is writing in digital environments, and also a co-founder of Drawbridge Incorporated, an educational technology company. He studies how digital writing is associated with citizenship and learning. He's published two books on communica- uh, community literacy and articles in journals like College Composition and Communication, Technical Communication Quarterly, Computers and Composition, and English Education. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It is really, really great that you're able to be here today. We're talking about language and about how the way we talk about technology and the way we talk about the future impacts how we act in the present. Now, you're a professor of rhetoric and professional writing, which means that words and language are at the heart of what you do. I think to kick off the discussion, it would be really nice if you could tell us a little bit about language and its impact on the way we understand the world. How does the way we talk about things actually impact the the way the world works? Well, you couldn't have started with a bigger and more complex question. Uh, Thanks, G. (laughs) (laughs) You can break it down a little bit. Simplify it for us in podcast land. Well, yeah. So there are a number of academic disciplines that study this question in in various ways. So my colleagues in linguistics um, will talk about how language uh, serves as a kind of terministic screen, um, as a frame, 
and we see and understand the world through the frames that language provide for us um, in in literature and in art. Um, the languages of, of literature and art uh, shape how we understand the world, and this is why this is why art is so powerful: is that it gives us a language, um, sometimes a visual language, sometimes an, an auditory language, a sound language, and sometimes a written language for experiencing the world in new ways. And and you 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 and your listeners have probably all experienced reading a book that forever changed your life because it gave you language for understanding um, the world in a different way. Um, in, in my home discipline, rhetoric, um, it's literally the ancient study of, uh, I like to talk about it as the, the ancient study of how to do things with words. And, and so while my, my colleagues, and by words I mean, in today's age, I mean um, sound and, and video and film. So how do we do things with semiotic systems, language broadly understood? In an English department in the U.S., for example, you might have literature scholars who study uh, what texts mean, and we study what texts do. And so we're very interested in how we can use language to do work in the world, to persuade people, to um, change the world, to help people see the world differently, to learn. Uh, and we know, um, as most humans know, if you think about it, that language powerfully shapes uh, who we are as humans and how we experience the world. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so Jeff, on this episode, um, we, we also spoke with Colleen Dylan Schneider um, about how, particularly in, in the cultural sector, we speak a lot about futures and using terms like innovation and forward thinking. How do language trends or buzzwords or fashionable rhetoric gain traction in a popular vernacular? Well, that's fascinating. I mean, one of the things about the Internet, which makes that question both easier to answer and more interesting, is um, one of the ways that I understand um, computer networks or the Internet um, mm -hmm. is as an accelerator for language change and use. So it's like it's, it's, it compresses time and space almost. So mm. where I'm going with this is one of the ways to understand that is how to meme, watching and tracing how memes develop um, in social media, for example. These are... Um, and so by language, we might, we might focus on cats, pictures of cats or dogs underwater or, or particular hashtags or particular language use. And we can, see in, we can see compressed in time and space where these things come from and how they proliferate and how they enter our, our brains and our consciousness and our language practices. And so I think um, social media in particular provides almost every week really interesting cases about... Um, where language comes from and how language changes and, and how we adopt these different language practices. Um, so what, to give you a quick example, one of the things that I'm told is not exclusively a Michigan thing, um, but um, is, is very important um, to how people in Michigan talk is, is what is to say something, I know, really? Um, which is, yeah. Oh, really? I know. Um, so my, my kids do this, and I find myself doing this. And there's some, interesting, there's some interesting work on where these colloquial inflections come from. And they can be remarkably localized, but then they can proliferate very quickly. Now, it's really interesting you say that. You almost completely prompted my, what I wanted to ask about next, which was where the digital technologies have created new emphasis on, on the spread of language and on different types of language. And as soon as you start talking about space and time and its impact on language, I think we're very much pre you know, aware of that when thinking about the internet. But 
to go back to this idea of buzzwords, I mean, the fact that we are using so often this language like innovation and forward thinking, do you think that those these sort of specifically technology and future-facing words have also come about sort of in response to the fact that the technology is so present in all of our lives? You know, I don't know. Um, that's an interesting question, uh, at least in my local context. So Great Lakes states, Rust Belts, um, Upper Midwest, U.S., um, those words have a very different sort of cultural logic and meaning attached to them. For, for oh. the, I associate them more with change or die. Um, and yeah. so for, for, the, for the circles that I've uh, inhabited in my local, in my local communities and contexts, um, those kinds of words are very important to helping drive the message and the idea that um, for economies that once you know, made cars and made other big, giant steel objects. Um, if we're going to persist and thrive, then we have to innovate and we have to change. And so those, that forward-looking language comes from a very different context, at least in this very local context. Mm. Mm, that's, that's super interesting. Um, so you study writing in digital environments. Um, how does... How does a digital environment impact the way that people communicate with one another, you know, such as, you know, if you're looking at memes or you're looking at Twitter or the immediacy of communication, how does all of this impact what we're saying? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, it, and actually, um, thank God for the Internet, um, for, for people like me. <laughs> so, and, and us. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right, so I know, right? Do you see what I just? Do you see what I just did there? I just did a little Michigan thing. I know, right? Um, so, well, let me back up a little bit in answering that question. So, most of the internet is writing, and yeah. when I yeah, say that yeah. to people, they don't always get that or agree with me. But because they say, "Oh, look, it's all that image and all that sound and all the media that we push across computer networks," but in actuality. Um, computer networks have always been principally written environments. And I think they're going to continue to be for a very long time, which allows me to say things like, um, those of us using these network technologies today write more than any generation of human beings in history. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that computer networks have made uh, possible and made real is a true explosion in human written activity. Um, so one of the things that one of the reframings I like to give people is that as boring as Facebook might be, it's much more interesting to me as the most significant collaborative writing project in human history. Mm. And mm. and there's any number of different instances of that. And computer networks make all of that sharing and collaboration and coordination and distribution and publication possible. It also makes possible all of this archiving. Um, mm. And so I think in ways, ways we understand, um, at least sociologically, and ways that we don't understand cognitively, uh, computer networks are rewiring our brains in particular ways, and they're rewiring um, our writing practices in particular ways. And it's not clear to me what the impacts of those rewiring and those changes are going to be, but it's pretty clear to me, at least anecdotally, that they're significant. I mean, so consider who would have thought that writing 140 characters at a time would be so damned important. Um, but it mm-hmm. is. And we, you probably know people, I know people who get paid a lot of money 
um, to help organizations write things 140 characters at a time. And so right. that's, a, that's a very mundane instance of a technology that's driven a very new kind of writing practice. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things that just popped into my head when you were talking that I'd never even really considered when you were saying that the internet is largely writing is actually it's not it's not just writing in terms of our communication with one another but also in terms of code so code is a written space and so this idea that the internet is largely writing is both true at an infrastructure level as well as then sort of an interpersonal level in a way that i hadn't considered absolutely and not only that but objects do lots of writing to the internet so every time mm-hmm. we sure. every time we buy something at a store a computer network is writing a text about us mm-hmm. um, and it's mm-hmm. a, and as you know it's a text that can be mined and that can be um, that can be accessed by Lots of different kinds of people, um, and there's a, so there's an entire text about each one of us that is written not just by us and by other human beings, but by it's also being written by objects, the Internet of Things, um, that we interact with all yeah. the time, and that's a tremendous textual complexity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was just gonna kind of chime in here, Jeff, and and as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, about the the power that this rhetoric and these narratives have um how i mean how important is controlling this rhetoric in terms of a of a power like if if you're a person or an institution or an organization that defines the language of speaking about something i mean that is a very powerful thing Mm. oh absolutely and this is why this is why rhetoric has has been with us since the birth of human history and and why rhetoric is dangerous because if you teach people to be powerful with words they can do they can do bad things um, and they can right. they can do beautiful things sure um, so let me give you a real a quick instance of, of that and how to, how to think about that on the ground so coming we did the we did a, a few years of museum based research on whether the social media environments of museums were learning environments and how we could facilitate those learning environments and we found that there were particular writing moves that facilitators in museums could do that were more likely than not to produce the kinds of learning outcomes that they wanted. In other words, there were ways that museum facilitators could write to and with each other that were more likely than not to create, to facilitate, to cause other people to write in ways which created a conversation which was richer, um, more content-focused, um, people learned. And there was this group in, uh, in North Carolina called Speak Up North Carolina that heard about this work, and they were interested in the question of, well, could we facilitate better um, comment section conversations on news items? And, you know, comment sections in newspapers are one of those places, in online newspapers are one of those places that no rational human being ever goes, right? It's the bowels of the Internet. It is. Yeah. It's, one of those, <laughs> it's one of those dark places. But, but they were interested um, around the issues that they cared about. They were interested in seeing whether they could actually engage and shape those conversations so that they became learning environments, so that people uh-huh. learned something about the issues as opposed to said horrible things about other people or to each other. And so they did a couple of experiments using some of the facilitation techniques from the museum research, and they got good outcomes. They actually, mm-hmm. they actually the conversations weren't awful. Um, and so it seems to me that there's lots of ways that we can write with each other in digital spaces that can make those spaces more thoughtful and safer and smarter um, 
than not. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you and I met last year at the Museum Computer Network Conference when you were there precisely to talk about some of these museum experiments, and I'm sure we can find the links to the videos of that because you were there with with Beck Tench and with uh, the crew from North Carolina. Now, I remember you and I having this conversation about how rhetoric is largely about audience and that it's an act of persuasion. Right. Is the majority of rhetoric meant for the the creator of the text, as in a speaker or a writer, or is it about the listener and the reader? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there's actually a line of inquiry in my field called rhetorical listening. Um, and in some respects... Um, in some respects, this is more about this is still about the writer. Um, um, in other words, it's it's a set of heuristics and a stance for how we can listen to each other, um, and it, it it draws in particular ways on things that um, your audience might know, active listening, and other ways to be sort of an engaged listener. But a rhetorical listening stance is a is a fairly complicated way to engage with and respect um, audiences and let those audiences shape what we think and believe and say. Um, so in some sense, it's really turning the act of listening into an act of writing. Um, but there are also, in, in, in English studies, there are also approaches to what's called reception or how we receive text and receive communication that are really grounded in how listeners, how readers experience the communication and making sense of the communication that they're receiving. So these are, at least in the academic sense, this is terrain that, uh, that, is, that is fairly well understood. Um, but you're absolutely right that traditionally rhetoric has been all about the speaker. Um, hopefully all about the speaker being ethical and responsible with her audience. Um, but, but it isn't always been, and in that regard, it's been about engaging audiences in different ways. Um, but there isn't, there isn't really, uh, a, to my knowledge, a well-articulated sort of rhetoric of reception, um, which may be what you are asking. Hmm. Interesting. So kind of bring this back to the inspiration of, of this discussion. Uh, Colleen, when, when we spoke with her, you, you know, she suggests that you know, we're talking about the present when we talk about the future um, and it kind of this idea that that rhetoric or language can can hold hold meaning underneath what, what it is we're actually saying what do you what do you think about this idea and, and does the way that we talk about these issues impact you know how we think about them essentially well, I think there's no question about that when we talk about the future we're probably also not just talking about the present but we're all also almost certainly talking about the past um, right. right and this is where this there's no question about that and this is this is why gosh I mean that is such a broad terrain I mean mm-hmm. the, it it scales up and it scales down in interesting ways so I mean this is why a politician like Barack Obama can sort of take the political scene by the lapels and give it a, sh- a shake. I mean, or why, to, to go back in American history at least, why Abraham Lincoln was such a remarkable shaper of the future um, mm-hmm. because his language practices... I mean, if you go back and read Abraham Lincoln's speeches or you pay attention to, Martin, uh, to Barack Obama's poli- his best political speeches, they're all about the future. Um, and but, but they do that, they, they construct the future by... Uh, helping us understand who we are at the present moment and giving us a language and a very positive language, not a negative language. So I think the thing that works about 
um, really productive, future-oriented language practices is they are almost always positive in nature, um, which is another way of saying I don't think fear and scaring people works particularly well in terms of motivating or painting a, a picture of the future. Um, but, so, but I think the only way that people are able to understand um, and imagine a future is if you, we also ground them in the present. Um, mm. So I, it's, it's, hard for, it's, hard to, it's hard to have a future-oriented language which is completely disconnected from the present because it seems weird. Um, mm. It seems disconnected. It seems unreal. And I think people respond to it that way. Oh, it's pie in the sky. Um, oh, that's just, not, that's just not who I am. This guy isn't connected with reality. So I think the trick is to give people a future-oriented language which is grounded in some sense in how they're experiencing the present and how they've experienced the past. Um, but give them a, a language which is positive, which is exciting, which is projective. Um, and we see this in the best politicians, which is the sort of scale-up version of it. But we also mm-hmm. see it at the level of an organization or a group or a team. I mean, you guys have all had team leaders or coaches or... Or, or play directors who, could, who had the ability to help to motivate you to be excellent and to really invest a tremendous amount of time and language in something that was in the future, um, whether that was um, a play production or a product launch or a product idea or even a new business. Um, these are people who are really good in granular ways of coming up with a, a vision of the future um, which motivates, which, which gets people out of bed in the morning. Right, and that's absolutely the reason why having these visions of the future then becomes important, is it is also how we drive forward and move forward is by having this, this vision ahead of us. Jeff, I think it's time for us to wrap up, but so much of what you have said has been so interesting for us. Now, if people from the museum sector want to read more about what you're doing, either what you, what you did with museums or what you're doing generally, where can they find you? Well, that's a great question. I'm probably not a very good digital writer in this regard. So they can find me um, at rac.msu.edu, wrac.msu.edu. I'm findable there. And once you find my, my people page, my Jeff Grable page, um, I'll point you to some, some resources and some websites that have more information. Very cool. Uh, Jeff, this has been personally one of my favorite discussions of the entire museo punk series it's it's a fascinating topic i think we could probably go on for hours but uh but we we won't do that today thank you so much for uh for for joining us well it was a pleasure thanks for having me Okay, Suze, some some uh, some pretty wild uh, ideas there, huh? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I've been wanting to talk to both Jeff and Colleen for a while, just just hoping to have a chat to them. I think Jeff's thinking and his expertise is so interesting, and obviously Colleen is great. But it was so lovely to have the chance to talk to them about this topic. Yeah, definitely. And even speaking with with Jeff. I I, um, <clears throat> I had a phase earlier in life where I was really into uh, semiotics and rhetoric and, mm. and politics, especially, and kind of spent like two or three years just like reading every book about it and, and just talking to him. Uh, brought back that that um, kind of obsession for uh, you know 
10 minutes or so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I, too, have had a thing about language and such an interest in that. I remember reading the start of a book once about rhetoric, and it made the claim that um, a well-timed death is a powerful piece of rhetoric. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, it absolutely (laughs) is. But it it sort of shifts the way you think about it, because then we start to think about rhetoric as being bigger than just speech, but also actions and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Speaking of speech, I just wanted to apologize to any listeners and you, Suze, in case my kids in the background are, are, are distracting. We're uh, recording from home this morning, and uh, sometimes it's uh, it happens when, when, when it's just before school and trying to get out the door, so there's some noise. You know, I have to say, Jeff, for me, it's one of the charms and the pleasures of doing the show is having those sorts of background noises. But, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, to me, I think that's kind of funny that you're making that apology. Um, there's the this American Life episode that's on this week is talking about origin myths. And one of the things that's interesting is it talks about the way um, a lot of American entrepreneurs talk about having been founded in their garages, Mm, which is often not entirely true. Or if it's true, it's not to say that they were just tinkering away for years. Um, But it's an almost uniquely American story. And so to me, there's even something kind of nice about the fact that, you know, this is our, you know, this is our basement this story, is our, origin, our garage story. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, there's, I think there was even, uh, you might not have seen it, Suze, uh, but there was a, a popular commercial. Um, it might even still be running about all of these origin stories. I think it was like, you huh. know, they show a garage with, uh, and they say, you know, Microsoft started, a, you know, 1976 or whatever. And then they show like um, Amazon in a basement you know, started in, you know, 1999. And then they show the Ramones started, you know, <laughs> basement or garage in New York. And it's like kind of adding to this kind of allure of like bootstrapping and scrappy <laughs> hacking and getting, getting something, which is really romantic in a way to me. Right. Um, and kind of how I, I feel I, to, you know, approach p- professional work like this. But again, like, you know, if the, if there, if the, if the data and, uh, narrative shows that it you know it is an american myth and it's it's interesting yeah absolutely especially when we're talking about language and its impact on the way we think and talk about the future but also the present i mean this is i I think it's completely fine that your kids are in the background but that (laughs) (laughs) that is so perfectly exactly tied into the space in which we're working Definitely. So, I mean, I think you and I can could go on on this topic for forever, but we don't want to. Uh, we I know our listeners have to get back to work. They got to get back to making uh, amazing museum exhibitions and doing great work in the sector. So, um, Suze, in the meantime, between now and our next episode, if somebody wanted to, I don't know, tweet you. Where would they do that? They should definitely find me at ShinesLike on Twitter. And in fact, trialing out the new social networking site, Ello, I'm also ShinesLike. So if you are on that new network, I'm going to be checking it out and seeing what I can do there. So uh, find me there as well. Jeff, what about you? You can find me online at staticmade.com, also at staticmade on Twitter. And just a heads up, we're both planning to go to MCN in Dallas in November. are indeed, yeah. Okay, so uh, let's uh, let's just plant that seed and maybe uh, find some people to talk to and chat with and hang out with. I think that sounds great. I've already started making internet dates. <laughs> <laughs> so to to wrap up, uh, museopunks.org slash one eight. 
mm-hmm. uh, for show notes and all the information about this episode. You can also follow Museo Punks on Twitter at Museo Punks. Um, and uh, with that, let's call it a day. Sounds great. See you, Jeff. Bye, Suze.